Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. For Jesus' sake, for it's in His precious name that we pray, amen, amen. If you'll remain standing and take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 7 through 10, so Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, if you will follow along as I read our text, beginning now in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, we're back again this morning in the first chapter of Ephesians, where we have been looking at Paul's hymn of praise and and thanksgiving, which runs from verse 3 all the way through verse 14. In verse 3, as you'll remember, Paul begins by declaring that God is to be blessed, he is to be praised, and though verse 3 comes across as sort of a command, it isn't. Rather, it's a, it's a call for us to join Paul in worship and adoration and, and praise to the one who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And of course, it, it goes without saying that God is worthy of our blessing. He is worthy of our praise. I mean, we're not worthy of the least of his blessings. We are unworthy slaves. We don't deserve every spiritual blessing in Christ. And yet he blesses us with all of those spiritual blessings so that we then in turn will bless and praise his holy name. And of course this is what praise and worship is. It's our response to God for who he is and what he is and and for his blessing us with such inexhaustible and eternal blessings. And so Paul began this section by declaring that God is to be blessed, he is to be praised. And then beginning in verse 4, Paul explains why God is so worthy to be praised by spelling out for us how he has blessed us. First of all, in in verses 4 through 6, Paul tells us of the spiritual blessings that we have received in the past. The blessing of being chosen in Christ and predestined for adoption. And that's the past blessing that started all the other blessings. It's the first and and greatest blessing and the foundation of our salvation. 
We were chosen by God the Father before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And this according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us or graced us with in the beloved. That is in Christ God's beloved son. God's ultimate purpose for us as sons is that we should be holy and blameless before him. But there's a big problem. We're still on earth. And we're still fallible and still sinful. And our sin makes us guilty before God. And the Bible declares that God holds us responsible for our sins. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. So the question is, how can we ever be brought to the place of being holy and blameless before him? Because our sin is a great obstacle to our ever getting to that position. Because our sins have, become, have, have come between us and God. I mean, as the prophet Isaiah reminds us, saying, The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. So before we can ever arrive at the predestined position which God has purposed for us, something has to be done about the problem of our sin and our sins. And something was done. And that is what Paul tells us about next. As we come to verses 7 to 12, Paul turns from the work of the Father in eternity past to the work of God the Son in the course of history. And here Paul gives the second of four main reasons why God is worthy of the praises of his people. He has redeemed us. He has redeemed us. Building on what he has, has already been said about the blessings we have in Christ, Paul now just overflows with praise to God in praise to God for his great work of redemption accomplished through Christ. The forgiveness that is ours because of his death. That's verses seven and eight. And then for God's plan because of his death. Or, or excuse me, for God's plan to sum up all things in him in verses 9 and 10, and for the rich inheritance that is ours in Christ in verses 11 and 12. And as we look at verses 7 and 8, the first thing Paul tells us is that this obstacle of sin that stands between us and God and, and must be removed before we can ever be reconciled to God has been dealt with in Christ. Look at verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. I want to read that one more time because we have probably all read this verse so many times that we're just used to reading it and going on without ever dwelling on it and meditating uh, on all that's here. In him. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. You see, Paul's statement here in verse 7 is the very heart of the gospel. I mean, this is the essence and the content of the gospel, all summarized right here in verse 7. 
And so it's important that we understand its meaning because the enemy of our souls would like nothing better than to confuse people in their understanding of the gospel. Because if you get the gospel wrong, you get it all wrong. And you're lost. And you'll notice Paul begins by saying, in him. Literally, in the Greek text, it is in who or in whom. Well, who do these words refer to? We'll look at verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. The words in him obviously refer to the one who was described at the end of verse 6 as the beloved. Of course, Jesus is the beloved. He is God's beloved son in whom the Father is well pleased. So Paul says God has blessed us in the beloved, and it is in him, in the beloved, that we have redemption. And so in him, in Christ, we have redemption. And these are very important words. Because they tell us at the heart of the gospel is the truth that there is no salvation at all apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. The statement, in him we have redemption, tells us that we can never make ourselves Christians. If you're still thinking in terms of making yourself a Christian or trying to be a Christian, it's a very clear indication that you're on the wrong road. And as long as you're on that road, you'll never become a Christian. Because the first thing that we have to realize and understand is that we cannot save ourselves. No man has ever made himself a Christian. And no one can ever make themselves a Christian. And to try to make ourselves Christians shows that we don't understand even the first step in the way of salvation. Because at the heart of the gospel is the truth that there is no salvation at all apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is Christ. And our Lord did not, come, did not come to tell us what we have to do in order to save ourselves. He came to save us. He came to do something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. He came to act on our behalf. I mean, that's the very essence of the gospel. It is in Him that we have salvation. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. It is Christ himself and what he has done on our behalf that comprises our salvation. Our salvation, our redemption is in Christ and in him alone. He did it. He obtained it. Now looking back at verse 7, he says, Paul says, in him we have redemption. Well, who are the we in this text? Who does, who does the we refer to? Well, we're not left to guess and speculate about this. All we have to do is read the chapter, right? It tells us exactly who the we are who have redemption in Christ. It's the saints, all those who have been set apart by God for God in verse 2. Those who are faithful, that is, all those who believe in Christ, verse 2. All who are blessed in Christ, verse 3. All who are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, in verse 4. All who are predestined for adoption as sons, in verse 5. All who are blessed in the beloved, verse 6. All who are forgiven all of their sin, in verse 7. All who have obtained an inheritance, in verse 11. All who have believed in Christ, in verse 13. 
all who are sealed by the Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance in verse 14. In him, in Christ, Paul says, we, all that the Father has chosen and given to the Son, all who will ever believe, have redemption. In him, we have redemption. And we don't have it in our English translations. But the Greek text has the definite article, the. And so it reads in the, in the Greek text, in him we have the redemption. You say, what's so important about that? Well, it states emphatically that this is not just any redemption, but the redemption, the great redemption. The final, full redemption accomplished by Christ on the cross. Not other redemptions such as the shadows in the Old Testament like the the kinsman redeemer in Ruth or the blood of the Passover lamb redeeming Israel from slavery in Egypt. No, this is, it is in Christ we have the redemption, the great redemption. say, well, what does this mean? What does the word redemption mean? Well, one commentator pointed out that we use words such as redeemer or redemption as religious terms. But when the man of the first century heard them, he immediately thought in non-religious terms. It brought to mind the common picture of a slave being purchased and then set free. Redemption meant release from bondage by the payment of a price. And every Gentile in the Roman world would have thought of this when he heard the word redemption. The word redemption is a commercial term borrowed from the marketplace that basically means deliverance at a cost or release by payment of a price. But embedded in the word redemption in the original language is the Greek word which means ransom. The idea of redemption is deliverance or release from bondage by the payment of a price to ransom, to release, to buy back or to deliver someone from a situation from which they were powerless to free themselves from or for which the penalty was so costly that they could never hope to pay the ransom price. The imagery behind this word comes from the ancient slave market. Redemption pictures a slave hopelessly entrapped in slavery being bought out of his bondage and set free by paying the necessary ransom price. And there is always a price involved in the redemption. I mean, a slave could purchase his own freedom if he could save or collect sufficient funds, but the price was usually something which the slave could not meet. But a slave could also be set free by someone else paying the price that was demanded for him. So he could be bought out of slavery. And that is the essence of the meaning of this term, redemption. And it was a very meaningful term to the first century reader, as there were some, uh, by some accounts, up to 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire at at this time. And many of these slaves became Christians and and fellowshiped in, in the local churches. So redemption was was a precious thing in Paul's day because it meant someone's release or deliverance was accomplished at the cost of a ransom payment. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said, 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a what? Ransom for many. Jesus told his followers that he did not come into the world in order that they might serve him, but that he might serve them. He had come to do something for them that no one else could do, namely to give his life as a ransom for many. And why is this important? Because you see, loved ones, the the word of God teaches that mankind is in bondage as a result of sin. Man is under sin, under the dominion and power of sin. Man is a slave to sin. I mean, sin is our great problem, but even worse, it's a problem that we cannot solve by ourselves. And we think of sin as a, as a small thing. You know, indulgences that, that do us little harm, especially if, if nobody seems to be hurt and if we're able to get away with them. But the Bible says that the result of sin is slavery and bondage, out of which we are totally unable to escape on our own. This is the bad news of our sin. Unless you think I'm, you know, exaggerating, as Jesus declared, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, John 8.34. All, all unbelievers are in slavery to sin. They are in bondage to sin. And as slaves, we cannot live free lives. Because of our sinful nature's corrupting influence in our entire being, including our choices and desires, we we can't say that man has a free will because man's will is bound by his nature and therefore limited. Yes, certainly man has a will. Certainly man makes choices. But our will is in bondage to sin, which is why we keep on sinning. And furthermore, we cannot relate to God in the way that he intended as his children because our sin separates us from him and prohibits us from entering into his holy fellowship. Sin is bondage. And having been born in sin, having been conquered by sin, and having accumulated a great debt of sin's guilt before God, there is nothing we can do on our own to escape this slavery and its ruin. We are in bondage. We are held as slaves to sin. And we cannot set ourselves free. Because man cannot be righteous on his own. There is none righteous, no, not one. The whole world is guilty before God and accountable to God. The whole world is in a state of slavery to sin and to Satan. It is under the dominion of Satan. As John said, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We are also in bondage to the law, which condemns us. I mean, if we could perfectly keep the law and all of its demands, then it would save us. But we cannot. No man can keep the law. I mean, no man or group of men can ever keep the law and all of its demands. Therefore, the law condemns us as cursed. 
mean, cursed is everyone who does not keep on doing everything written in the book of the law, Galatians 3.10. You want to live by the law? Well, then you better fulfill every single one of its demands or you're cursed. And none of us, no man, can ever keep the law's demands. That is the fundamental teaching of the whole Bible. We are all by nature under the curse of the law and stand condemned before a holy God with no way to free ourselves from our slavery. And we are under the sentence of death because the wages of sin is death. And so if man is going to be delivered from the sentence of death, somebody has got to pay the price. And somebody did. And that somebody is the Lord Jesus Christ. He left the glories of heaven, became a man. He was fully God and fully man at the same time. He came into this world in order to redeem us. He came in order to pay the ransom price that would set us free. That's what Paul means when he says the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The redemption is in Christ Jesus because Jesus is the ransom. He gave his life so that there could be release and deliverance. He paid the price to set us free. Well, free from what? Free from sin. Sin, it's power and penalty and a sinful life, Romans 6.22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Paul, writing to Titus, said that God gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. First, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul speaks of Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Christ redeemed us and set us free from, from the bondage of sin. I mean, our redemption involves redemption from sin. So we're not saved to sin, but rather we're saved from sin, from the guilt and condemnation of sin, the, the power of sin and sin's penalty, the wrath of God. And so for the believer to live, continue to live in sin is to contradict the, the very redemption that Christ secured for us. He redeemed us from sin, its power, its penalty. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Galatians 4, 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ redeemed us from sin. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And then thirdly, there is a future aspect to our redemption. We will be redeemed future tense from our sinful bodies. Romans 8.23 And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, you may not think that you have a bad body, but the older you get, you know you have a bad body because everything doesn't work the way it's supposed to, right? If you're older, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But our redemption also means that in the future, we're going to have a brand new body. And when is this going to happen? On the day of redemption at the rapture. 
Bible says, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. The rapture is the translation of living saints who will be transformed. We will be changed. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And that's, that's the culmination of our salvation known as glorification. And if you die before the rapture, you'll be resurrected when Christ returns and you will come forth in a new glorified body. So redemption involves the redemption of our bodies as well. We're going to receive a brand new body, glorified body. And so in him, in Christ, we have redemption. The Lord Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. He redeemed us. He paid the price for our release from sin and guilt and condemnation. And the result of our redemption, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, is that we are not our own. Why? Because we were bought with a price. A Christian, Paul says, is therefore a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul often described himself in this way. I mean, what he says about himself in effect is this, I'm the slave of Christ Jesus. He said that often. You know, I'm the slave of Christ Jesus. I was a slave of Satan, but Christ has bought me out of the slave market of sin, and so I am now the slave of Christ. I am his property. I belong to him. And that is true for every Christian. We are not our own. Why? We've been redeemed. We have been bought. We have been purchased. We are now the possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Master and Lord. Therefore, we are no longer to live for ourselves, but for Him who for our sake died and was raised. 2 Corinthians 2.15 It is in Christ that we are saved. And what he has done to save us is that he has bought us. He redeemed us by ransoming us, by paying the price that was necessary to set us free from the bondage of sin and death. And this redemption which frees us from bondage, it isn't simply the the object of our hope, And we can know and enjoy our redemption right now. Because you'll notice Paul does not say in him we hope someday to be redeemed. Nor does he say we're working at obtaining redemption. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you know, we're working at obtaining redemption, but but if we we don't, you know... uh, you know, we, but we won't know if we get it until we see whether our good works are going to tip the scale. It's not what he says at all. Rather, he says, in him we have redemption. 
And the word translated here as have means to have or possess objects or property. And the present tense indicates that in Christ, redemption is our present and our continual possession. It is an abiding fact, past, present, and future. So it could be a paraphrase, in him we continually have redemption. And the point is simply that our redemption is an existing reality. It is a very present possession and experience. I mean, certainly we await the, the future redemption of our bodies and of creation. You know, the, the finalization of our redemption is not going to occur, though, until Jesus returns. But even so, right now, we have redemption in Christ. He has redeemed us from the slave market of sin. We've been redeemed from sin's power, its penalty, from the curse of the law. We have been bought for a price. He purchased us. We belong to Him. And knowing this ought to fill us with love and joy and gratitude for Christ. But you see, so often it doesn't because we think so lightly of sin. Our redemption should fill us with love and joy and gratitude. It should put us on our faces in worship. And it should remove any fear of judgment and and fill us with hope beyond the grave. It should motivate us to be holy and and to live for Christ. I mean, if you've trusted in Christ alone as the payment for your sins, then God wants you to know and enjoy the fact that He has redeemed you from the bondage to sin and you belong to Him. There was a little boy who lived near the shore of a, of a great lake, and he always went down and watched the ships on the water. And so he and his dad built a ship. They built a small miniature little ship that he was going to sail on the water. So one day they finished it. He was so proud of it and took it down and was, was sailing it there along the shore when a big gust of wind came up and <laughs> blew the thing away. I mean, he was heartbroken. Nothing he could do. It was just blown out into the lake and he never saw it again. Well, sometime later as he was walking down the street, he saw in the, the window of a pawn shop his boat. And he went in and, and told the man the story. And the man said, well, I'm sorry. Uh, I paid a fisherman a good price for this. If you want it, you'll have to buy it. Well, he went out and he was determined more than ever to buy that ship. And so he took on odd jobs, all the odd jobs he could do, collected and saved his money until one day he had enough. And so he went in and paid the price and purchased his ship back. And when he walked outside, he held it close and he said, oh, you are so precious to me because I created you. And now I bought you. You belong to me twice. And that's the way it is with us in Christ. He created us. And he also bought us. He purchased us out of the slave market of sin. He redeemed us. You know, people ask, well, to who did Christ pay this ransom to? Well, I mean, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? When the ransom was paid to God, God was the offended one. It was God's law that was broken and demanded a penalty be paid. 
There were some in the early church that taught that he paid it to Satan since the Bible speaks of us being in bondage to him. But the Bible, the Word of God, never speaks about Christ buying off the devil or paying a ransom to him. And while sinners are Satan's captives, it is not because he has any lawful right to them. Rather, as Hebrews 2.14 says, by his death, Jesus destroyed the devil and his power. When in redemption, by the power of Christ, Satan is defeated, but Christ's ransom was paid to God to satisfy the demands of his law, to, to release us from the law's penalty of sin. And this is what Paul writes in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Colossians 2.14 says, Christ canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And by taking our sins upon himself, paying the debt we owe to God's holy justice, Jesus redeemed us from the law's condemnation. Thus he destroyed the devil's power which relied on the curse of God's law. And what is the exact price which was paid in order to redeem us? Well, Paul doesn't leave us to wonder about it. Look back at verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood. We have redemption through his blood. The price of our redemption was his blood. It caused the blood of the Son of God to buy men back from the slave market of sin. And Paul's lack of any explanation here suggests that he was quite confident that his readers understood what he was talking about. But we need to make sure that we understand it because it's, it's absolutely full of meaning. Paul is using blood as a metonym for death. And so when he speaks of Christ's blood, it's his death that he specifically has in mind, which is the penalty and the price of sin. You say, well then why, why didn't he say through his death instead of through his blood? Well, because he has a certain kind of death in view. Through his blood signifies Christ's violent death on the cross as a sacrifice. See, it was absolutely necessary that Jesus didn't die of sickness or by an accident or of old age. His death had to be a sacrificial death by which he died in our place as our substitute. And Paul uses the word blood to point back to the Old Testament sacrificial system, all of which Jesus fulfilled when he offered himself on the cross. All of those animal sacrifices pointed ahead to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who by his death redeemed all whom the Father gave him. So this means that our redemption is the sacrificial, the price of our redemption is the sacrificial substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. His death was a substitute for our death. In other words, he died the death that we deserved. He died in our place. The death we deserved and could not save ourselves from, the Lord Jesus, though he didn't deserve it, took upon himself. He paid for what otherwise would have condemned us to death and hell. His death, his blood alone saves us. 
I mean, you'll remember that the, the blood of sacrificial animals was continually offered on the altars of the tabernacle and then the temple, but that blood was never able and was never intended to cleanse the offerers from sin. Those animals were only symbolic, typical substitutes. As, as the writer of Hebrews explains, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But through the shedding of his blood, the writer of Hebrews tells us, the shedding of Christ's blood, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I mean, Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God, Paul says in Ephesians 5.2. And as the writer of Hebrews explains, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And as Peter said, you were, you were ransomed from, you were not ransomed from futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so it's no wonder that John saw the four living creatures and the 24 elders in heaven singing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The Lord Jesus Christ has paid the price for those enslaved by sin, bought them out of the slave market, set them free from the bondage of sin and death. I mean, his death frees all those who believe from sin's guilt, condemnation, bondage, power, penalty, and some glorious day, even from its very presence. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Somebody should say, Amen. I mean, Jesus is our blessed Redeemer. In the early part of the last century, B.B. Warfield, who was a distinguished theology professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, delivered an address to incoming students in which he argued that there is no one of the titles of Christ which is more precious to Christian hearts than Redeemer. And this is because, he said, Redeemer is the name specifically of the Christ of the cross. Whenever we pronounce it, the cross is placarded before our eyes and our hearts are filled with loving remembrance, not only that Christ has given us salvation, but that he paid a mighty price for it. And he paid a mighty price for it. I mean, salvation is, is freely offered to all men without cost, without price. But the redemption that we have in Christ was not cheap. In fact, it came at a very high cost. Christ has purchased his church with an infinite price. He redeemed us with his own blood. But not only has he redeemed us, there's even more. It just keeps getting better and better. Look back at the verse. In him we have redemption through his blood, 
Now look what he says. The forgiveness of our trespasses. And the word trespasses means a stumbling aside, a false step. Uh, It's the action of going beyond or overstepping some moral boundary or limit. So it speaks of a person going beyond or overstepping the will and law of God by some false step or failure. It's not accidental. The word points to the intentional steps of a sinner to cross the boundary of God's law. It's a deliberate violation. So it's deliberate sin. And trespasses is, is really synonymous with sins, but the nuance indicates individual acts of sin and not sin in general. And so Paul tells us here that in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now by nature, men dislike the idea of the forgiveness of sin because we don't like to think that we need forgiveness. Because we don't like to be told that we're sinners. And redemption is ultimately going to end in the glorification of my body, but it begins with the forgiveness of sin. And unless you you have realized that your sins must be forgiven, you're not a Christian. I can say that confidently. Unless you have realized that your sin must be forgiven, you're not a Christian. Because the first need of every sinner is that he has his past sins dealt with so that he can be delivered from condemnation and from the wrath of God that is upon him. And so when Paul mentions our redemption, the very next thing he says is the forgiveness of our trespasses. Because the primary result of redemption for the believer is forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is not the same as redemption. Forgiveness rests on redemption, but they are each distinct spiritual blessings. Redemption means being freed from sin's power and penalty so that it no longer rules over us, whereas forgiveness means literally a dismissal, a sending away. That's what the word means literally. And it speaks of loosing or letting someone go from what binds him. It was used in secular Greek as a legal term that meant to repay or cancel a debt or to grant a pardon. And here it basically means God wipes the slate clean. He cancels our debt of sin so that our sins no longer hang over us like the glistening blade of a guillotine ready to drop at any moment. Thank you. Jesus. Because the blood of Christ deals with our trespasses, we know that his blood redeems us not only from the original sinfulness of our human nature, but also from the guilt of our individual and daily sins. Every every dimension of my sin, all of my individual trespasses, my entire debt of sin was canceled by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so not only has he redeemed us, he has given us the forgiveness of sin. As one man said, forgiveness is perhaps the most exciting and comforting doctrine in all of Scripture because it is what guilty sinners need to be made right with God. In Colossians 2.13, Paul says that God has forgiven us all our trespasses. How many? All. 
all our trespasses, all our sins, not just the past sins, not just the present sins, not just the big sins, not just the little sins, all of them, all of them. I mean, do you understand? Do you understand this means that the sins of your past that plague you with guilt, he forgave those sins? And those times when you sinfully hurt others, he forgave those sins too? And all the times you, you promised you'd, you, you did something for the last time and then you fell again, God forgave those in Christ too? He forgives the hidden sins and the public sins. He has forgiven all of our trespasses, all of our sin, past, present, and future. They're forgiven for his name's sake, John says in 1 John 2.12. And they were forgiven countless ages before we ever committed them and will remain forgiven forever. However, Because as believers, we still sin. We will continue to confess our sin and to ask for forgiveness daily so that we might enjoy the specific forgiveness of daily cleansing which brings fellowship and communion with Christ. So that the Christian life is one of continual repentance and asking for forgiveness. But once we have trusted in Christ alone for salvation, We never again need the forgiveness of redemption that was settled once and for all. Once and for all. So think of it. Think of it, loved ones. Every sin of every believer is forgiven forever. And God has not only forgiven, but as the psalmist said, he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Think about that incredible statement. As far as the east is from the west, this this describes the limitless scope of God's forgiveness. Because you can travel east or west without ever coming to its end. But that's not true if you travel to the north or south where a specific end point is reached, either the north pole or the south pole. God has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. But to ancient Israel, the distance from east to west represented infinity. And God's forgiveness is infinite. It takes away our trespasses to the farthest reaches of eternal infinity. I mean, he couldn't remove them any further. I mean, God gave a specific promise to that effect when through Jeremiah he made the promise of the new covenant saying, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah 31, 34. In Isaiah 42, or 43, 25, the Lord declares, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. What an amazing thing. I mean, God has so dealt with our sins that he has taken them and he has cast them into the sea of his forgetfulness. That's eternal forgetfulness. He chooses not to remember them anymore.
And our sins in Christ are forgiven absolutely, finally, and completely. They are, are never to be seen again. And loved ones, it's important for people to understand that neither good works nor good intentions nor a healthy self-esteem can wipe the slate of our souls clean. You cannot get forgiveness of sin by doing penance or promising to try harder and do better because that never works. Forgiveness is found only in Christ. And when it is found in Christ, it is found now and forever. The verse says we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. Again, it's in the present tense, which means like our redemption, our forgiveness of sin is not just a future hope, something that one day will be ours. It is a present possession. It is something that we're to enjoy here and now, To be a Christian is to know that your sins are already forgiven. It's ours now. It is an existing, ever-present, liberating, and life-changing reality in this present moment. God has forgiven us all our trespasses. One man said, he has forgiven you all your sins. Christ has utterly wiped out the damning evidence of broken laws and commandments which always hung over our heads and has completely annulled it by nailing it over his own head on the cross. I mean, this is such a glorious truth. It's such a glorious truth. Let me put it to you this way. You know, most people are in some kind of financial debt. Perhaps, you know, some of you are. Perhaps some of you are not. But the majority of us owe money either on a car or a home or a student loan or, you know, something of that sort. And although it can be a burden, most of us can at least see light at the end of the tunnel. So we're encouraged by by the, the, the fact that one day it'll be paid in full And we're going to receive from our creditors a piece of paper releasing us from any further obligation. But to be burdened with a debt which you could never pay in a million years, to be burdened with a debt from which you will never ever be set free, that's too much to comprehend. In fact, that's absolutely horrifying. As one man said, to owe a debt that you know you can never pay off is psychologically devastating. Extend that indebtedness and the penalty it incurs into eternity and it becomes horrific beyond words. Such was the reality of our spiritual indebtedness to God until Jesus paid it all. You see, we we just don't get excited about this because we don't understand how damning sin is. We don't understand that one single sin, doesn't matter what it is, one bad thought, one cross word, one selfish action, just one of what you might consider to be the most tiny and insignificant sin is enough to damn your soul to hell for all eternity. 
That's the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And every single one of us had a mountain range of sin that we had acquired. And we deserve nothing but death and eternal hell. And that is what Christ redeemed us from. He has forgiven that mountain range of sin against us. Look, there was no magic wand that that waved off our guilt and made it disappear. God's justice and holiness were at stake as well as our eternal destiny. And that is why payment had to be made in full. And as one man said, we were buried beneath a mountain of spiritual bankruptcy. And so at the cross, all the charges against us, the record of our debt of sin we could never pay and for which we deserve death and eternal hell. God took all of that debt, all of that guilt, all of that sin that that stood as a perpetual witness against us and he canceled it all through the blood or the death of Jesus Christ. So we're no longer in default on the debt because whatever we owed, Jesus paid. At the cross, all the charters by which we justly deserve death and hell were settled. He paid it all. I mean, the debt is cleared forever so that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So well did the hymn writer declare, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I mean, loved ones, just think, think. All of our sin, all our debts, all of our rebellion, all of our guilt was laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who was nailed to a cross where he died for our sin. So as believers, all our debt, sin debt, is canceled. All our sin forgiven. All our sin taken away so that not a trace of it remains to be held against us. Our forgiveness is full and complete. And what is it that gives us this redemption by ransom, this forgiveness of sin that we enjoy? Well, the answer is in verse 7. Look back at the verse. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And this, Paul tells us, is according to the riches of his grace. According to the riches of his grace. Had nothing to do with us, anything in us, nothing about us but it had everything to do with the riches of his grace. And we'll talk more about this in our next study, but suffice it to say for now, God has lavished grace upon us. May we are are the recipients of God's extravagant goodness and kindness and grace. And we don't have the words to describe God's amazing grace. John Newton did a pretty good job, but we don't really have the words to describe his grace. 
And so the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross provided a full and complete redemption and a full and complete forgiveness. And if God in Christ has forgiven our sins, which he has if we are trusting in Christ alone for salvation, then shouldn't we continually pour out our hearts in praise and adoration to him? In Luke chapter 7, we read there of an unknown woman who the Bible says was a sinner who came to Jesus, poured out an alabaster flask of expensive ointment to, to anoint Jesus, and she did so out of love and adoration for the forgiveness of her sins. And we're told that standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And of course, the Pharisees who were present were too self-righteous to ever seek Jesus' forgiveness, and they grumbled at this. You know, if he really knew what kind of woman she was, oof. But Jesus said she was lavish in her love and adoration because she realized how much she had been forgiven. She realized the enormity of her sin. She realized how much she had been forgiven. In fact, Jesus said to the Pharisees, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. In other words, if, if you don't think you've been forgiven very much, you don't think that you were that bad of a sinner, then you're not going to love much because your forgiveness doesn't mean that much to you. But I can tell you this right now on the authority of the Word of God, that every single person in this room was a vile, starting with myself, a vile wretch of a senator, sinner, and I don't care how religious you were, you were a vile wretch of a sinner on your way to an eternal hell, which we justly deserve. And so we all should love much. Because to forgive just one sin still took the very life of the Son of God. You see, those who don't realize how much they've been forgiven, they just love little. So they don't praise and worship and adore Jesus like this woman did. And if you don't think you were that sinful, let me just read to you what Paul says in Ephesians, describing unbelievers. You know, you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at, the work, at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were without hope and without God in the world. We were walking in the futility of our minds, uh, which were darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness, due to their hardness of heart, they become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, uh, 
sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's the kind of people we were because that's the only kind of people that exist outside of Christ. And those are the kind of people that God chose and loved and redeemed and has forgiven. And so every single one of us in here, regardless of what your background was before you came to Christ, we, we should love him greatly. And we should worship him continually because we have been forgiven so very, very much. And as the psalmist said in Psalm, 10, in Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And God's redemption brings about the forgiveness of sins. Uh, and that, that's just an amazing gift. And to receive this gift is the, is the greatest blessing one can ever experience. And if we've received redemption uh, in Christ and the forgiveness of our sin, how can we not? How can we not give all our trust, all our hope, all our love to a Savior like this? How can we not offer up to Him our lives? I mean, all we are, all we have, all we will ever be in in grateful worship, adoration, and praise. Let me ask you, do you you know that you have redemption? Redemption? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Can you say, I have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin? If you can, worship him and praise him and thank him. But if you can't say that, And to anyone who can't say that, I would say turn to Christ. Turn to him today. Turn to Christ for redemption and for the forgiveness of sin. Run to him today. He's offering to you salvation and the forgiveness of sin freely without price but it cost him dearly. Come to Christ. It's your love that makes me see. It's your word that comforts me by your blood. Set free, and Lord, give to us a passion for your word that we may grow and walk in all your ways. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel, Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530. 530- 547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. 
or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. Grow.